Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We are going to approach this a little bit differently than what you have in your order of worship. There's three texts that I want you to have in your mind as we proceed. So we're going to start by going back to the beginning of Matthew 24, just to remember the question that the disciples pose to Jesus. They ask, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? Now, take a look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering." And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And now let's go back to Matthew 24 and pick up with the Olivet Discourse in verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never shall be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Father, as we delve into the great mysteries which Christ has revealed, we ask that you would guide us, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to understand this forewarning from our Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, two weeks ago, if you remember, I suggested to you that biblical prophecy is a lot like an impressionist painting, the kind of painting that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're standing too close, but if you're at the right distance, everything does make sense. All the pieces fit together. With that metaphor in mind, what I want to do this morning is start with the big picture. I want to start by trying to see how all the pieces fit together in what we've just read. And then once we've done that, we'll zoom in a little bit on a couple of things to look at them in more detail. Specifically, we'll zoom in on the sign that Jesus talks about, and we'll zoom in on the warning that he gives. But first, the big picture. First, let's see how it all goes together. The essence of what Jesus is saying to his people is something like this. When you see the sign, it is time to flee Jerusalem. When you see the sign, it is time to flee Jerusalem. Now, Jesus wasn't a Southern preacher, and I'm not a Southern preacher either, but if I was, I would have put a lot more into that, and I would have said something like, when you see it, it's time to flee it. That's the message. When you see it, it's time to flee it. It's as simple as that. Jesus is saying, there's something that's going to happen. And when you see it, immediately, here's what you've got to do. And what you've got to do is run away. Run away. When you see it, it is time to flee. Interestingly, flee, not fight. He says it's time to flee, not to fight. And that's telling. Right? Jesus doesn't say, get ready to defend Jerusalem. People are coming, and they're going to try to destroy the temple. And when they do, you need to be standing there firm to stop them from destroying my house. Not at all. Jesus says, when you see them, flee them. Run away. And what that means is this. What's coming is divine judgment. What's coming is from God. The reason you're not fighting it is because it is unstoppable. And also this, what's being destroyed no longer serves the purpose it once did. What's being swept away no longer has the value that it once did. So that now, unlike in the past, Jesus can say, when you see the sign, it's time to flee. So flee, don't fight. But also, don't delay. Flee, but flee immediately. Because the judgment that's coming will come quickly, and it will be terrible. Jesus says, don't grab your stuff from your house. You don't have time for that. If you're in the field, don't run back and grab your cloak before you go. You don't have time for that. It's coming quickly, and it's going to be terrible. You should pray that nothing slows you down. Pray that this doesn't come when you're great with child. Pray that this doesn't come when you're nursing. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath when those restrictions will close things down because when this comes, you've got to run. You've got to flee immediately with no delay. So flee, don't fight, and don't delay. And also, don't despair. 
Yes, what's coming is terrible, Jesus says. It's so terrible, in fact, that no one would survive, not even the elect. Not even God's chosen people would endure what's coming, except that God will restrain the evil. That God, Jesus says, will cut it short. God will not allow his church to be extinguished or, as we discover, deceived. So, flee, don't fight, don't delay, but don't despair either. This is God is in charge. And because he's in charge, one last don't, don't fall for signs and wonders. Jesus has repeatedly, throughout the Olivet Discourse, sounded this note, this warning, don't be seduced by false teachers, don't listen to false prophets, don't uh, follow after false messiahs. And here he, he raises it a little bit. He says false prophets, false messiahs, they're going to come, not only are they going to come, they're going to work wonders. And the wonders that they work are going to be part of the reason why people will believe them. But for Jesus, he tells us it should work the opposite. When you see them performing the wonders, that should be a sign to you not to listen. When you see them doing these incredible things, that should trigger not your credulity, but your skepticism. The signs and wonders that Jesus and the apostles performed had a purpose. They were there to testify, to authenticate the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. They were there to show in the age before the Holy Spirit had brought God's word into print and inscripturated it, that this message was real, that this was the true word. And that mission, having been completed with the closing of the canon, comes to an end. So that... When new prophets and new messiahs come, working their wonders to authenticate their false gospels, we can dismiss them out of hand, not pay attention, not listen, because we know that is not the way Christ will come again. The next coming, Jesus says, isn't going to be like that. The next coming isn't going to be hidden away. You won't have to chase into the wilderness to find me. You won't go into some secret inner room in order to find me. The next time I come, no one is going to miss it. Now, this is a big picture that Jesus paints that has a very immediate reference. Right? He's speaking to this generation, the apostolic generation, about events that are going to take place in their lifetimes, in their generation. But as we've seen already, prophetic language like this often layers different references. So that as we look at this passage, there are things that we look at and say, yes, this fits very well with the history of what happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But you may see some things that don't fit as well with that frame of reference that seem to be pointing farther forward, as indeed the Olivet Discourse does. So remember the question that the disciples asked, what will be the sign 
of your coming? What will be the sign of, in Greek, your, your parousia or perusia, depending on who you're listening to? What will be the sign of that? And here, Jesus references a sign, but actually seems to be saying, here's a sign to look out for, but it is not the sign of my coming, because my coming will be different than this. So something's going to happen, but that thing that happens, cataclysmic as it is, is not that final coming. But let's think for a moment of how the history overlaps with these words, right? When you see this sign, it's time to flee. When you see the sign, the sign's a little bit different if you compare the Gospels. Uh, Matthew describes the sign as it's accomplished, right? The abomination of desolation standing in the temple. Luke describes it as it's imminent, the armies coming and surrounding and circling to besiege Jerusalem. They're talking about the whole event, the whole siege and fall of Jerusalem, which indeed did happen in history. As an uprising took place in Judea, and the Roman armies swarmed around and besieged the city of Jerusalem for a number of years, and then finally captured it, sacked the city, and destroyed the temple. And indeed, in history, when these events took place, the Christians who were living in Jerusalem did exactly what Jesus had said to them. They fled Jerusalem. They went to a place called Pella, which is in the foothills of the mountain ranges near Jerusalem, a traditional place of sanctuary. Although one commenter on this says, this is a typically Christian thing to do. Jesus says, flee to the mountains. So when they see the sign, they flee to the foothills. They obey, but not 100%. They get the gist of it correct, but they do go. And indeed, theirs was an age that was full of false gospels, many different claims to be the Messiah. The whole point of this uprising was people lending credence to these other kingdoms, these other claims, physical deliverance instead of the spiritual kingdom that Jesus had talked about. But what Jesus is alluding to here is something that I don't think the, the people of that generation would have appreciated, that the temple could be destroyed, that the old order could pass away, and yet that would not be the end with a capital E. Right? That's the thing that they're having to get their minds around, that that's not the end, that that's the birth pains. That's the beginning of this new age that is being inaugurated. Because when the king does return in power, when Jesus does come back, he compares that coming to, he uses metaphors that make it unmistakable, right? He's going to come suddenly, but he's going to come openly. It's not going to be hidden. He compares his coming to lightning in the sky. Like it happens over there, but you can see it over there. Like, no one in a lightning storm needs a prophet to come along and say, hey, do you want to see the lightning? It's in a, in a room hidden in there because the whole sky is full of it. The point of that is when I come again in power, there will be no ambiguity. There will be no mystery. All the layers will be unfolded to you. When I come, you're going to know it. Another metaphor, this is a more challenging one, the whole thing at the end about the carrion and the vultures. But if you think about that, that does make sense because the kind of, of coming that we anticipate is a coming in judgment. 
When a king comes, one of the things that a king does is he conquers his enemy. A king is a righteous judge. He punishes wrongdoers. And what that punishment often looks like in human history is a battlefield littered with the corpses of the fallen. Those things are difficult to hide. You don't need a tour guide on the day after the battle. Say, hey, do you want to know where the battle happened? I can show you. It's like, no, I think I can just follow the birds. I think the vultures might already be there. It's inevitable, right? It's visible. It's out in the open. And that's what Jesus is saying to his people, big picture. There's a sign that you need to look for. It's the one that Daniel talked about. It's going to be fulfilled in your generation. And when you see this sign, you've got to flee. You've got to get out of here to avoid this judgment. But don't worry, it won't overcome you. It won't destroy you. The church is not going to be wiped out by this event. It would be except for God reigning it in, ruling, uh, ruling it over in such a way that his people are protected. And when people tell you that this is my coming, when people tell you that, that, that this is what marks my return, you need to understand it's not. It's not two separate events. My real coming, my full coming, that's in the future. And don't worry about it. You're not going to miss it. That's the big picture of what Jesus is saying here. Now, as you read in Daniel, and then you read in Matthew 24, a lot of it, I know, can seem opaque. It's hard sometimes to see what it is Jesus is saying. And we don't have the advantage here of the, uh, the Bible having talked about this prophecy after its fulfillment. Right? We don't have a book of the Bible that was written after the destruction of the temple that says, hey, guys, do you remember Matthew 24? Well, it turns out that here in AD 70, that was fulfilled. So our understanding is somewhat speculative and yet we can see in what Jesus is saying, two events, a coming in judgment in this generation that ends that old order, but then a future coming at the end of the world that results in that final judgment. And that's going to be very, very public. That's the big picture. Now let's try to dig a little bit deeper into some of the details. So we're going to look at two things. First, a fulfillment from a captive prophet. And secondly, a forewarning to a chosen people. So Daniel is our captive prophet. And Daniel in Babylonian captivity receives this vision. And he gets interpretations of his visions from angels. But when the angels interpret, they don't always spell things out clearly. And so Daniel is really important to understanding New Testament prophetic passages, but is also complicated and sometimes difficult to understand. And Matthew, in Matthew 24, shows us some of the complex tapestry that is biblical prophecy. And we can see some events that feel like they very concretely relate to the events of AD 70. We see some things here, though, that are true for every generation. As we saw last time, some of what Jesus is saying is evergreen. This is always good advice for his people because we always face trial and tribulation. And then some of what Jesus is saying hints at and points to an ultimate coming, the second coming, and the final judgment. And all of those things are woven together. 
And for the way that the New Testament talks about these things, Daniel's prophecy is really important. One commenter says that the prophecies of Daniel, not just 9, but, but chapter 7 through chapter 12, provide essential concepts that you find here in Matthew 24. Uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds in Daniel 7. The abomination of desolation, which we have before us now, is mentioned a number of times in Daniel 8, 9, 11, and 12, and the destruction of the temple alluded to in Daniel 9, 26, we just looked at, and then in Daniel 12, the idea of an unparalleled tribulation. A lot of points in Daniel, and I think when Jesus refers to it, he probably doesn't just have one verse in mind, but, but the whole scheme of Daniel. But I've given you just two verses to kind of give you a, a, an orientation, a sense. I think this is the most relevant passage to what Jesus is talking about. Now, even in these verses, there are some mysteries. There are some, some things, the, the numbers of the weeks and, and how they're divided, all of that can be a little bit speculative. And Jesus does not explain all of it. Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, remember Daniel? Well, let me explain what everything in Daniel means. But he does give a point of contact. He does say that sign that Daniel refers to is the thing that you need to look out for. You realize a year ago, right now, we were in Matthew 13. A year ago, we were talking about parables and how to interpret parables. And back then, I said that parables are cryptive narrative analogies. Cryptive narrative analogies. They're stories that teach their lessons through symbolism, but they require careful handling because they can be somewhat mysterious, sometimes hard to interpret. Well, prophecy is also cryptic, and it's also analogical, but it uses many different forms. Like sometimes prophecy uses narrative, but it also uses poetry and symbolism. It sermonizes occasionally. There's lots of visions, pronouncements of judgment, all those things, all those genres are present in biblical prophecy. And even without going too deeply into the words of Daniel, as you look at that passage in chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, there are two events that you can look at and at least draw like a rough line to historical events that take place in the generation that Jesus is speaking to. First, these words of Daniel, an anointed one shall be cut off. In the King James Version, that's translated, Messiah shall be cut off, because anointed one and Messiah are synonyms, two ways of saying the same thing. So there's a Messiah, an anointed one, who's going to be cut off. In Luke 24, on the Emmaus Road, Jesus asks a question of the disciples that he meets on that road, those men who are so uh, discouraged and confused by the things that have happened. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And after asking that question, Luke says, Jesus goes back to Moses and the prophets, and he preaches everything in the Old Testament that refers to himself. And as he preaches that sermon on the necessity of the suffering of the Messiah, I can't help but think, Matthew 9, verse 26, 
is in that sermon. Because Daniel, in that vision, sees that one day an anointed one, Messiah, shall be cut off. And indeed, that's about to happen. That's imminent. Within days, that's going to take place. That's one event. But then also, Daniel writes these words, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And he adds, they'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now again, we don't have to connect all the dots in order to see that that sounds a lot like what's going to happen when Jerusalem falls to the Romans. Not only will the city and the sanctuary be destroyed, but that puts an end to the sacrificial system, and that ended permanently. That has not been resumed. It is no longer taking place. This prophecy is fulfilled in that moment. So Jesus is referring back to these words of Daniel, which will be fulfilled, as far as we can tell, within a week of his speaking and within a generation of his speaking. The crucifixion of the Messiah and the destruction of the city and the temple, you might think of as bookends for that prophetic generation. Daniel, that captive prophet, must have marveled, though, when he got these words, because for him, the city had already fallen. For Daniel, the temple was already left in ruins. The sacrifices already at an end. He was writing in Babylon. He had been carried captive away from the fallen lands of Israel and Judea. He would have been justified in thinking when he found himself in the, by the rivers of Babylon that that what he just endured was the end. And yet, it was there in Babylon that he receives a prophetic word, the end has not yet come. Now remember, in Daniel's day, faithful interpreters of events would have told you that the fall of Israel and Judah, the destruction of Solomon's temple, the exile and captivity of the people, all of those things were divine judgment, not divine failure. They didn't believe that what had befallen them had befallen them because their God had been overcome by the God of the Babylonians. Indeed, it was their own God who had permitted these things to take place. He, their God, had used their enemies as instruments to bring about their overthrow in order to punish their sins. God had done this before. They only had to look back to the book of Genesis and the story of the flood of Genesis and understand that God sometimes uses judgment like that on sin and in that judgment preserves his people. This is why in Daniel's telling, the end that he prophesies, the end that is to come, will come, he says, with a flood. And if you look at that in Daniel, and then you look at what happened in AD 70, you'll say, wait a second, this cannot be referring to the same thing, because the Romans did destroy the city, and they did destroy the temple, but they didn't do it with a flood. But the flood here is symbolic, it's metaphorical, flood as judgment. 
Its end shall come with a flood the way Noah's world came to an end, to that flood of judgment that swept away all those who had been condemned and left behind only the ones God chose to spare. Just like the judgment that Jesus prophesies. Now, 200 years before Jesus spoke these words on Mount Olivet, a Hellenistic king, Antiochus Epiphanes, had conquered Jerusalem. And when he conquered Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he erected an idol of Zeus in the temple of Yahweh. People looking back on that event described it as the abomination of desolation and would have told you that was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, that the vision Daniel had had in Babylonian exile was fulfilled 200 years before Jesus had come. And yet, Jesus says it is still to come. It is a sign for the future. That was not the end either. It's only now, Jesus says, that Daniel's vision is being fulfilled. It's fulfilled in your lifetime, in this generation. A fulfillment from a captive prophet that will happen before your very eyes. And when you see the sign, it's time to flee. You've got to run. It's going to be so terrible. And yet even this is not the ultimate end. Because after this collapse of the temple, a new age will dawn. Now what does this mean for the church? So Jesus signals that the apostles will see Daniel's signs fulfilled, right? Messiah will be cut off, crucified in a matter of days. Within a generation, the temple will be destroyed. The sacrificial system will be at an end. All of that's going to happen. Now, during the time between those two events, the gospel of the kingdom would primarily focus on the lost sheep of Israel. But after they flee from Jerusalem, there's a turning of emphasis towards the nations, towards the Gentiles, which we've looked at before. So for the church, they're getting a kind of transitional generation, right? where the work begins one way and it ends another as the old order passes away and the new is inaugurated. So their generation will mirror the destruction and exile pattern that was repeated again and again in the Old Testament, only instead of repeating that cycle over and over again of physical fall, physical rebuilding, there will be a transformation from the physical to the spiritual. With the destruction of the physical temple, the building of a spiritual temple will commence, and that temple will never fall. That temple will never need to be rebuilt. It is a permanent dwelling place that God is building for himself, which is why Jesus tells his people, when you see them coming to destroy the physical temple, just flee. Just flee. There's nothing there for you. There's nothing to cling to, nothing to hold on to, nothing to be nostalgic for. That is passing away. Instead, cling to my spiritual kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom, because your exile from here on out, will be a spiritual exile, not a physical one. And the foundation of the kingdom will be rooted from here on out in faith, not in geography. This is a huge 
transformation that's taking place. The second thing I want you to think about is a forewarning to God's chosen people. Right Before the Genesis flood, God forewarned Noah, and he set him working on what would become the instrument of his deliverance, the ark. And in the same way, Jesus does this. He forewarns his people, but instead of setting us to work on an instrument, it turns out the instrument of deliverance will be God himself. There are two great catastrophes that are coming, a great tribulation and a grand deception. And ultimately, it is God who will preserve us from both. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. That is eschatological language. When he talks about that tribulation, the way that he describes it, it sounds like end-of-the-world tribulation. Now, commenters on this will say, you know, sometimes prophetic language talks into the world, but its actual fulfillment was not the end of the world. And so it's possible for words like that to be alluding to and referencing the actual tribulation that, that led to the events of A.D. 70, which were actually quite bad. Uh, the historian Josephus records the events for us, and what he records gives us a flavor of the terror that those people endured. But when we hear those words, a suffering like has never happened before and never will again, it seems impossible to us that that could have already happened, and, and we don't know about it. Nobody told us about it. But I think that may be connected to two things. One of them is the fact that we uh, don't have a, an appreciation for the significance of the suffering that takes place in the end of the old order and the beginning of the new. And, and that the significance of the events affect how we gauge the suffering. The only analogy I can think of is the way that sometimes people will try to say, that Jesus on the cross had to suffer the most pain that any person ever suffered in the whole history of the world, like that his pain had to be more than any other pain ever endured, because the only way that they can measure the, the value of that suffering is, is through that sense of like, like what percentage of, of horribleness did it, did it reach to, did it achieve, right? But part of the suffering of Christ had to do with how far down he had come. Right? So honestly, even if Jesus had never suffered physically any pain, he already would have endured more than any human being had ever endured before in his humiliation. The pain that he endured at the cross heaped more and more humiliation upon that. But we don't need to get into to sort of graphs of how much pain was endured in order to measure it. The scale of how far down he'd come intensifies everything that he suffered. In the same way, I think the great tribulation that those Christians endured is intensified by its significance in God's redemptive plan because of what it signified, the end of the old world and the beginning of the new. It was a great trauma. There's also a period of great deception accompanied by false Christs and false prophets. Their signs and wonders are meant to authenticate their message and these are signs and wonders, Jesus says, that would have convinced everyone if God had permitted it. In the same way that the tribulation is so great that everyone would have been killed if God had allowed that, the signs and wonders were so convincing that everyone would have believed if God had permitted it. 
Uh, one commenter says, the purpose of these mighty deeds is to lead astray the elect, if it were possible to do so. The implication of the if possible that Matthew uses is that the eclectoi, or the elect, the chosen, are in the care of their father, and that it is therefore not within the power of these enemies to accomplish their purpose. In other words, Jesus sounds a note of mercy to us for the sake of the chosen, specifically for their physical salvation, the scale of the tribulation will be reined in. And for their sake, too, specifically for their spiritual salvation, the scale of the deception will be limited, too. He forewarns us against being deceived and protects us from being deceived. In other words, God reigns in the ruin for our sake. The point of what Jesus is saying, the reason it's encouraging to hear that he's saying that the elect, the chosen, will not be deceived and will not fail to be saved. I know when you hear words like that, elect or election, sometimes it can get your hackles up. But when you hear that word, a good word to put in its place is loved. Loved. Because God's election, God's choosing, is a way of talking about God's love. Election stands for God's love for his people, and it's a love that will ultimately triumph. But Jesus here hints at the mysterious way in which God's work of providence flows from and supports that love. In other words, because of his love for his people, God works within history to limit and channel what takes place. There are things that cannot happen because God prevents those things from happening for our sake. And we talk about the way that God uses ordinary means of grace to bring people to him. Uh, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer. But this is a good reminder that God also uses extraordinary means to guide and to protect, to guard his people. The same way that Jesus assured us that the gospel of the kingdom will advance and then the end will come, here, subtly, he assures us that the church will not be persecuted out of existence. The church will not be deceived out of existence, but rather God will providentially preserve it. Which is why Daniel, when he speaks of these desolations, speaks of them as desolations decreed. As he speaks of the judgment, he speaks of it as a pouring out of judgment as the decreed end. Right? The prophets declare the decrees of God. Before those decrees have been fulfilled, that's the point of prophecy, but their fulfillment is certain. Once they're spoken by the prophets, they will come to pass because what God decrees, God carries out. God does. And everything to come is therefore under God's control, which means that everything to come, superintended by him, will exemplify his justice and his goodness. So that when Jesus forewarns us, we shouldn't be fearful when God's decrees come to pass. Instead, we should be encouraged to greater faith. Or to put it more simply, I'll end with this. Don't be afraid that you'll miss it because you won't. Don't be afraid that you'll miss it because you won't. I know the church today is fearful 
of persecution. Like we fear that the end of Christianity is on the horizon. We fear the decline of faith. And sometimes that fear leads us to do things for Jesus that Jesus said don't do. Because fear often distorts judgments. But Jesus tells us here that although things are going to be extraordinarily hard, and although we'll be surrounded by false prophets and false Christs, we will not be destroyed because God providentially controls everything that happens, even to the point of cutting short the suffering in order to save us. We will not be destroyed and we will not be deceived because we are held tight in his loving grip and he won't let even signs and wonders lead us astray. There's another fear too that people sometimes have, and this is an understandable fear when we study prophecy. We might call this prophetic fear. It is the fear that if we don't interpret the signs correctly, if we don't get it figured out in advance, then we won't have the knowledge we need when the time comes. We'll miss Jesus is coming. But here too, Jesus assures us. The note that he ends on assures us. I realize carrion and vultures, it doesn't sound very assuring. But the point that Jesus is ending on is when I come back, you won't miss it. When I come back, you won't miss it. You won't have to trek into the wilderness to find me and you won't have to venture into some secret place. You're my people. I love you. You're not going to miss me. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.